1: Soviet propaganda tried to present an image of the bright future. It was a fake but positive image of the future. Putin's propaganda is different. It's more like cult of death. It's not about positive future. Actually, there's no future at all.
0: That's Garry Kasparov. He's the best chess player who's ever lived, an advocate for human rights and a staunch critic of Vladimir Putin. We first spoke with him last year, And I wanted to bring this episode back to my audience now because while domestic news has been at the forefront, many questions around Russia and its involvement in U.S. politics remain unanswered. And Gary's insights on Putin and his rule in Russia help make some sense of what's happening here. Since retiring from professional chess, Gary has dedicated his life to questioning power and politics in his native Russia. In fact, since we aired this interview, he held a full-day conference called PutinCon here in New York that I attended, along with Bill Browder, another one of our former guests. We'll get to what Gary Kasparov has learned and how it affects those of us in America in a few minutes. But first, your questions. Hi, Preet, this is Josie from Los Altos, California. Love your show. I have a question about this new separation between children and parents of immigrants or asylum seekers. Is it actually legal? Is it something that Trump just made up? Is it actually a law? And if the House and Senate do go back to Democrats, is there even a law to repeal? Thank you so much. Love your show. Bye. Thanks, Jyoti, for your question. Look, a lot of people have been very upset, I think appropriately, myself included, over all the things that are happening on the U.S. southern border. And what's making the problem even worse and compounding, I think, people's outrage is the way in which the administration has been explaining it. And not explaining it fairly and hiding behind technicalities and sometimes outright lying about it. Every time the president or the secretary of Homeland Security said that they absolutely have to separate children because it's the law, it's just not fair, it's not correct, it's not accurate. And as I'm sure you've heard on television and in newspaper articles, because this has been going on for some days, and I haven't been with you in a while, the administration made the decision to have a zero tolerance policy at the border. That's a decision you make. That's discretionary. You know, We brought immigration cases when I was a U.S. attorney. I had immigration cases when I was an assistant U.S. attorney. And we brought cases relating to illegal reentry. Usually we brought them, after exercising our discretion, against people who had some aggravating crime or felony that they have been convicted of, were deported, and then returned to the United States. And that's how we decided to apply our resources. And like most U.S. attorney's office, did not bring Criminal cases in every instance where someone had merely committed the misdemeanor of coming into our country. Remember, it's a misdemeanor. Now, once you decide that every single misdemeanor is going to be prosecuted and you put the parent who is the misdemeanant under arrest and in cuffs, based on other law that exists, the children have to be separated from the parents. But if you don't make the decision, to prosecute every single case of those misdemeanors, then you don't have that problem at all. So for years and years and years, both under the Bush administration and the Obama administration, there were cases that they would bring against people who were coming into the country and said so there would be some separation, but it was not 100% in every case where people were merely seeking asylum coming to the United States. Let me say a couple of other things. One, it seems that what Trump is really getting at and the people like Stephen Miller and his administration... They don't like immigration, not just illegal immigration. They want to reduce legal immigration as well. It seems they want to eliminate any possibility of appropriate and legitimate asylum seekers from getting that kind of refugee status in the United States. And that's not the way America has treated immigrants in the past. And I don't think it's the way they should treat immigrants. Look, and I, you know, I don't think you need to be a parent to feel the pain that's going on at the southern border. It's tragic and terrible. I signed on last week to an open letter to Jeff Sessions, along with dozens and dozens of my former U.S. attorney colleagues, making exactly this point. You know, discretion is supposed to be exercised wisely and with justice in your mind and in your heart. And generally speaking, zero tolerance policies are lazy. They are trying to get across a political point. Sometimes they're worthwhile. Sometimes they're necessary. In limited circumstances, if you have a crisis, uh, I'm not sure what crisis there is that's going on. My understanding is that border crossings are down from the Bush administration and from the Obama administration. So if you don't have heart in how you decide your enforcement priorities, then you're gonna have problems like this. So I was asked the question recently, you know, whose responsibility is it to make sure that the children are reunited with their parents? Is it the prosecutor's responsibility? Is it DHS's responsibility? And my view is it's everyone's responsibility. One of the judges on the southern border said something that is worth noting and remembering, and he said it well. When you're a criminal defendant and you have rights in this country, when you're arrested and the officer or the agent takes your personal property, whether it's a phone or a car or currency or something else, they make an inventory of it and they give you a receipt for it. And that is still the defendant's property and needs to be returned to that person later. And the judge is saying words to that effect to an AUSA on the southern border last week and said, I don't understand. So a piece of property, you get a receipt but you take away someone's child, and there's not even a slip of paper. Assistant U.S. attorneys and everyone who is involved in law enforcement is supposed to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. And now it's not always spelled out in your statute book. It's not always spelled out in the rules of evidence, but it is spelled out in the oath. And that is to make sure that you don't visit undue collateral consequences upon people and that the punishment for a mere misdemeanor should not be the loss of your child forever. It's not clear me why FedEx is better able to track your package than our government is in tracking children that they're taking away from people who are trying to come to this country for good reason.
1: Hey, Preet, this is Joy from Los Angeles. I'm a big fan of your show. I have a question about Paul Manafort, who went to jail today. Why would he go to jail? What is preventing him from cooperating with the feds? Uh,
0: Joy, thanks for your question. You know, the, the issue of cooperation and the psychology of cooperation is something that people have thought about for a long time. Um, I'm writing about it a little bit in the book. And human beings, being unique, have different reasons for doing what they do. You know, some people fight and go to trial. Some people plead guilty. Some people flip. Some people don't. And there's some people who flip right away. And there's some people who only, on the eve of trial, finally focus their mind on what's going on. So... The decision about whether or not Paul Manafort wants to cooperate could be affected by a number of things, including you know, what he thinks loyalty means, including whether or not he thinks he has information that's worthwhile to give on somebody else, and also in the unique circumstances of this case, the possibility of being pardoned. Lots of signals have been coming out from the White House and from Donald Trump himself that seem to suggest that if you keep your mouth shut and you read between the lines, maybe you too can get a pardon. There's another component to this also, the prosecution side, and it may be that Paul Manafort has some interest in cooperating, and it may be, although it seems very unlikely, uh, that through his attorney has proffered some information to the prosecution saying, well, this is the kind of thing he might have, and the prosecutors don't need it to make a further case on someone else, or maybe there's not a further case they think they can make, because in the federal system, in order to become a signed-up cooperator, you have to provide what's known as, quote-unquote, substantial assistance. And if he can't provide it, whether or not he wants to, he gets no deal. So again, the dynamic of it, the psychology of it is all unclear, but those are the possible reasons why he's not cooperating. Here's another question about cooperation in the form of a tweet from MF. I wonder what that stands for. Uh, Is it possible there are other cooperating witnesses that we don't know about? I recall reading about mafia when made men would flip, but it wouldn't be known until a trial. Well, so that's a great question. It happens all the time. In fact, there's all sorts of evidence that we may not be aware of in the Russian investigation, probably aren't aware of. As you'll remember, over the course of many weeks in talking about the investigation on the show, it's often the case that a bombshell will come out on a particular day, and people weren't focused on the person who all of a sudden comes to light, has been charged. That was true with George Papadopoulos, and it's been true with other people as well. There are basically two kinds of cooperation, right? There's historical cooperation, and then there's proactive cooperation, And both of them can be secret, you know, sometimes until you get closer to trial. But the most important kind of secret cooperation is proactive, which occurs when, you know, law enforcement either puts someone under arrest or approaches them and says, we could arrest you and asks them to flip in a way that they can do sleuthing and other kinds of investigative fact gathering for the prosecution without other people knowing it. And the most, you know, fruitful way that a cooperating witness can do that so long as nobody knows that person is a cooperating witness, is to do something like make a phone call that's recorded or a body wire. We had case after case after case where you do that. In the mob cases, that would happen all the time where people still trust the person, don't know that they have been approached by law enforcement, and they say things that incriminate them because they're talking to somebody they don't realize is now an arm of the government. I don't believe that is likely to be happening because I think anybody in the ambit of the investigation so far, any associate of the president, any associate of Manafort, any associate of a lot of folks probably are being careful because they think everything is being looked at. But you never know. I was surprised to see Paul Manafort engage in in what seems to be witness tampering himself while he was on house arrest. It's very dumb. Lots of people do very dumb things and I suppose it's possible that they are cooperating witnesses who have been doing proactive work. That remains to be seen. But yes, absolutely everyone should remember from the spirit of your question that there's lots and lots of stuff that prosecutors are doing, that's probably true with Michael Cohen in the Southern District and true of Manafort and others with the special counsel. Lots and lots of stuff that we don't know. My guest this week is retired chess master and human rights advocate, Gary Kasparov. Gary and I talked in December of last year, shortly before Michael Flynn, who briefly served as President Trump's national security advisor, pled guilty to lying to the FBI about contacts he had with the Russian government. But even before that plea, Gary had a theory about the relationship between Flynn, Donald Trump, and Vladimir Putin. It struck me when we first talked, and as the months have gone by, it's feeling even more prescient. That's coming up. Stay Tuned is supported by ZipRecruiter. I've been a lawyer for a long time, and no lawyer ever won a case by himself. It takes a team. It takes the best people. That's where ZipRecruiter can help. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Their matching technology and easy-to-use websites streamline the process, making sure the applications you see are from well-qualified candidates with the right experience. Now my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash Preet. That's ziprecruiter.com slash P-R-E-E-T. Let me say a, a big welcome to my guest on this week's program, Gary Kasparov. Thanks for inviting me. So you're known for a lot of things, but the thing you're known for most is for being perhaps the best chess player in the history of the world. I'm sure you're tired of hearing that. Are you tired of hearing that? Yes, absolutely. No, you're not. But,
1: um, okay, fine. It's,
0: uh, <laughs> it, I, I, I've retired
1: long ago, so uh, that's why it's, uh, it's a glorious part of my life, but I, I'm, I'm quite happy that... Uh, I managed to have an um, orderly transition, and uh, now I hope people can recognize me for doing other things, not okay. only being the former World Chess champion.
0: Before we get to the other things, I want to just stick on chess for a couple of minutes. Go ahead. We had lunch a few weeks ago, and we, we talked about chess a little bit. When did you know that you were good at that game?
1: Your question is is, is a bit vague. Bad question.
0: Vague, because
1: what do you mean good? Uh, everybody could see that I was good at it, uh, when I just learned how to play chess because I could uh, compete with uh, with my relatives and then at age seven, I could play well against all the kids uh, in the Pioneer Palace, in the chess section in Baku. Uh, if you mean good as the very strong chess player, prodigy, probably age nine, 10. Good of being a potential world champion, age 13, 14.
0: When did you start playing? Uh,
1: probably I was... Six, but uh, nobody was there to tweet this news.
0: Nobody was. Donald Trump wasn't there tweeting your chess No, no, no. Just and it
1: was just, it's, uh, it was a winter evening, year 68, 69. I just watched my parents trying to solve some chess problems, and I got infatuated um, with, with, with the game. And that's, that was the greatest moment. So I was, I, by the way, I was very lucky that I just discovered chess at that early age, because that's where I could uh, show the greatest uh, talent. I have to be thankful to my mother, who uh, spent her life, dedicated her life to me after my father died. I was seven, and she never married. And uh, from her, I learned how to work hard. You have to work, and if you fail, you just, you know, you keep going on. So um, it's all up to you to make the difference. So if not you, who else? That was the her motto. That was on, on top of my bet. She also um, convinced me that the game of chess was not just about winning, but it's about
0: making the difference. How, how is Playing chess about making a difference
1: oh uh, when you play chess it's just it's it's, it's about finding something something new uh, just new openings new ideas in the middle game uh, chess is not just a sport it's also an art and a science so there's plenty of room for discoveries and I was not just the best player in the 80s and 90s and the beginning of the 21st century uh, but also I was most advanced pioneer, explorer, because I always wanted to find something new. So it's just to push the horizons, to come up with new ideas. And it's also important because this is the way you can stay on top. Because staying on top is also dangerous since, you know, you don't have opponents. uh, You beat all of them and you can easily um, lose the sense sense of danger. It's uh, uh, what I call the gravity of past success. Uh, The reason I could survive it for such a long time is because I always believed that, I have to fight my own excellence. So just fighting your own excellence gives you a good reason to come up with new ideas all the time. Fighting your own
0: excellence is a luxury problem to have.
1: Uh, look, it's luxury, but it's many people failed by being on the top. They just, they lost this sense of competition and uh, they became easy prey for other competitors. And uh, I always thought that it's not enough to win a new game with an old technique. So you always have to come up with new ideas to be at a cutting edge and to make sure that you always have something in your sleeves to surprise your opponents.
0: You say you're retired from the game of chess, but you still play chess.
1: I I hate telling you that. We we have to to agree on definition. (laughs) For me... (laughs) Okay, look, man after my own heart. No, no, for for me, playing chess means playing chess professionally. So that's why I can tell you I have retired in 2005 since that time, I played many simultaneous games, fun games, uh, exhibition games. But I retired from professional chess. So when people say, "Oh, Gary's is just is making comeback," no, I just I, I do it for fun. For me, it's uh, it's having chess for vacation. It just it's for fun. So I'm the I'm probably the strongest amateur on the planet <laughs> these <laughs> days. Not probably, I'm the strongest amateur on the planet.
0: <laughs> no, don't hold back. But why retire? So in other in other kinds of sports. If you're a pitcher, you get old. If you're a runner, your legs don't move as fast. I assume your brain works just as well in the chess way. Why, why retire?
1: Now, uh, uh, first of all, let's, you know, let's, uh, uh, let's make it clear. Your brain is not functioning as fast as when you're 20 or 25. But the big issue is this. You know, while you're aging, you have other things to concentrate on. So you have your family, you have other things, and your concentration is no longer... Same crystal clear as it used to be when you were a teenager, or you were in twenties, or even in thirties. For me to retire at age forty-one, still being number one rated player in the world, uh, was part of, of of my belief that it was not just about winning, but about making the difference. And I thought at that time that I I've made more than I could ever dream in the game of chess. So why not do other things uh, uh, and just to try to reinvent myself? Still being in the early forties, I had plenty of energy and I believe that the world could offer me a few opportunities to invest my knowledge, my experience, my analytical skills, um, my reputation. I'm quite happy that over the last 12 years, I managed this transition uh, just to establish myself as as a human rights activist, as, as a writer, as a speaker, it's, it's a new life. It still has plenty of chess because I keep promoting the game of chess through Kasparov Chess Foundation. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a new
0: life. And it's, I think it was a very good decision. Last question about chess. Before you retired professionally, you actually had a non-human opponent. You played a computer.
1: In Quite 19- a few, by the way.
0: You had one that was of considerable acclaim where you played Deep Blue in 1996. You beat the computer. Why did you agree to do that match?
1: I'm still thinking, sometimes just in the middle of the night, so whether uh, it was my curse or my blessing, speaking about machines. So that's when I became world champion in 1985, machines were laughingly weak. I played simultaneous exhibition against uh, 32 computers at that time and won all all the games, 32 games. When I retired from professional chess in 2005, machines were virtually unbeatable. I was a world champion in this period, and I... I still think it was my blessing that I was the world champion at that time. Historic moment. Very narrow window where machines could compete with humans. And that's, by, that's why it that happens everywhere. It's not only in chess. It's a classical algorithm. So uh, it starts with, oh, it's impossible. Then machines are too weak to compete. We're still laughing at them. Then it's real competition. And then machines are far superior forever after. In many other human occupations, we'll see the same phenomena. But chess was one of the first ones. You mentioned 1996. I won the match. I thought it was important for the world champion not to duck the challenge. So uh, the choice was I could be beaten. So I had the risk of being the first one to be beaten. Or I had the risk of being the first one who dug the challenge. So for me, it was not a choice. For your audience, I can give a piece of trivia that a free chess app on your mobile uh, device is stronger than the blue.
0: I want to move on and talk about Russia. We talk about Russia a lot in this country these days and the relationship with Putin. Actually,
1: you, you know, American TV, you can hear much more about Russia than Russian TV. Right. <laughs> I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's <laughs> because, right. Because Putin doesn't want Russian TV to talk about Russia in situations so bad. That's why on Russian TV, they talk about America as, of course, arch enemy and about anything else, anything but
0: Russia. <laughs> right. But before I get, we talk about Putin, and I know you have some views and you're not a fan, What one day eventually soon... We're gonna have a Putin fan on the show, but we're having some trouble finding one.
1: Oh, I'm sure we can find one, but- uh, They may I'm not come on the show. Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> the president, for example. <laughs> <sad>. <laughs> but, but what, you know, we hear a lot about the Russian government, and you know, most people have not had a chance to go to Russia. What's life like for an average Russian? And what does the average Russian think about America and Americans? Today.
1: Today. Look, I, I live in exile for nearly five years for an obvious reason. Uh, my mother still lives lives there, so uh, that's why I have some first-hand information. She's 80, uh, and um, she was born in the Soviet Union, so she lived under Stalin, under Khrushchev, under Brezhnev, uh, Andropov, uh, Gorbachev, Yeltsin. So she heard everything. So, and uh, she tells me that uh, today it's even worse than and in Stalin's or Brezhnev's years, because. The Soviet propaganda, though people could see through, some of them could see through, but it tried to present an image of the bright future. So yes, we have some difficulties now, but eventually we'll, you know, we'll build communism, we'll build a society where everybody will enjoy equal rights and we will have everything there. There will be abundance of food and, and opportunities. It was a fake but positive image of the future. Putin's propaganda is different. It's more like cult of death. It's not about positive future. Actually, there's no future at all. It's all about Russia being the besieged fortress surrounded by the, by the global evil. And he, Vladimir Putin, is the only savior of Mother Russia from its multiple enemies. Uh, it's poisonous. It's, it's totally brainwashing. And it's, it has no positive uh, substance. Does the average Russian citizen buy it? I think that it's, it's the many are buying it because you have to find an explanation for why your life is is, is getting worse. So it's the intellectual, psychological drugs. So people can take it in just not to see the reality. If we move from sort of average Russians from countryside to, to the more advanced social tiers in Moscow or St. Petersburg, here um, the situation is, is different because it's not just channel one or channel two, the simple, you know, primitive propaganda. Uh, we have to give Putin and his cronies credit for developing a very new type of propaganda. They developed great technique in, in, in selling this message in Russia by taming uh, the minds of, of intelligent people because the whole concept is simple. Truth is relative. Putin is more like merchant of doubts. Oh, yes, we're corrupt, but everybody's corrupt. Right. So what about yes, we're bad, but what exactly? This is what about ism. They managed to actually become the top professionals by doing it in Russia. Then they moved from Russia to the Russian-speaking neighborhood, the former Soviet Union, uh, the Baltics, the Ukraine, then to Eastern Europe, Western Europe. And of course, eventually, they ended up in the United States. They have been prepared already. So what Americans experienced uh, during the last election season That was a technique that has been polished throughout years in Russia or in Russian-speaking countries. So that's why the troll factories, they have been already uh, fully armed to play the same role as they did did in my country, even in the United States.
0: So it's no longer like the days of Pravda, where you had one-state-sponsored news organizations that only said positive things. Now, I've seen some of your writing on this. There are multiple news outlets, some of which in some instances, are permitted to criticize, absolutely, to absolutely. give them credibility. Exactly, exactly. Because they have to build credibility. Since they have, as
1: you pointed out, since they have many channels, they can afford to to empower these channels with negative stories. They can criticize Putin. So you immediately see, the, that, the, see that this channel is credible, but it has a story to sell. And then another channel sells another piece of story. It's very hard for even for advanced audience to actually follow it because they're so quick. And again, remember, truth is relative. To, to show you the, uh, some paradoxical uh, situations uh, in Russia, that the same evening, two different channels on Russian TV presented two different versions of the MH17 being shot. One is by Ukrainian missile, one is by Ukrainian military jet. So you say, how come? Who cares? it 's all about different versions, some people heard
0: this one, some people heard that one we don 't know what 's happened right it's not it 's not about pushing forward a particular truth no it's it's about making people believe you can 't trust in any truth exactly this is a, it's, it's destroying the very notion of truth
1: uh, and of course it aims at the democratic institutions because if if nothing is, is true, then everything is relative. So what's the difference between democracy and dictatorship? They're all bad. Everybody is corrupt. And you cannot take seriously even open democratic competition during the elections or the free press is not the free press because everybody is the same. So it's easy to poison
0: people with the abundance of information. Do you see any echoes of that strategy of attacking the very concept of truth going on in the United States?
1: Oh absolutely so uh, it seems to me that now they already succeeded in uh, in spreading doubts among American public. Uh, it's more about the partisanship than about facts. If uh, one third of American public is not sure whether to believe a special prosecutor or Russia today, that's already a big victory for Kremlin. When I say Russia today, of course, we can cite American media outlets that simply repeating the RT's stories. It's hard now to convince people pointing at facts. That's a big victory of Putin's propaganda machine.
0: Is this a clever strategy? Because at base, many people, they want to believe what they want to believe. And they have, you know, an inclination towards a particular belief. And so if you provide them with something that they hope to be true, they'll believe it or is it something different from that?
1: You're right. The natural instincts of people who are addicted to certain political views to stick with, with their heroes. And uh, if you feed them with the information that uh, that satisfies their interest about the outside world, they can buy it. While you have partisans on both sides, there are many people in the middle. And I think Putin's propaganda is most effective for this middle because it's about doubts. You don't want these people to actually uh, look at the facts and take them at a face value. You want them to doubt.
0: You once said about Vladimir Putin, you said Vladimir Putin is a strong leader in the same way that arsenic is a strong drink. Absolutely. What do you mean by that?
1: I think it's calling a dictator a strong leader, it's first, it's, it's disrespect for the, for the people who are suffering under his rule and also from my knowledge of history tells me that the end of any dictatorship is bitter for any country. So, at the end of at the end of the rule of this strong, so-called strong leader, you have poisonous mines, you have normally ruined country,
0: and then you need democratic institutions, a republic to repair the damage. But do you think he's a strong leader? And the reason I ask is we had your friend Bill Browder on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about the death of Sergei Magnitsky among uh, other things. And when I asked him whether or not Putin was a strong leader or not, he says he's a he's something like he's a small, weak man. So is he strong in any sense, or is he smart in any sense?
1: When we talk about Vladimir Putin today, we have to realize that uh, what we call him strong leader, and I disagree, or just today we follow with another extreme, with Bill's comments about him being a weak man uh, who is just uh, uh, looking for every opportunity to prove that he's he's not weak. But he doesn't operate in a vacuum. Vladimir Putin looks strong because the opposition is weak. Because for years, we saw no political will in the free world to confront Vladimir Putin when you could prove his weakness. And uh, Putin knows, I wonder whether from books or more likely uh, from his instincts, that dictator can make many mistakes except one. He cannot afford to look weak. So that's why it's all about an image, not being invincible, but looking invincible. And that's why Putin does absolutely everything to demonstrate that he could be the strongest leader in the world by defying the United States, by defying European Union, by pushing his agenda. And he knows that even some relatively small victories could be turned into a major demonstration of his invincibility.
0: But this idea you're referring to of, of a dictator not able to allow himself to look weak doesn't that apply to every kind of leader, a president, a senator, a governor? What what leader can afford to look weak?
1: Now, you know, when we talk about democracies, like in this country, I mean, we know that we have elections. If you look weak, you can lose elections, but it's a natural process. Image can be, by the way, tested by the facts. So some people can argue that facts are not facts, but still you have results. You, you have free press. If some press tells that the leader is invincible you always have the opposite press that will, will uh, tell you that the king is naked. Even if you deal with Politburo rule, like communist dictatorship, you still had certain rules within the group of the Politburo members, the, 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 the top communist leaders. They had to negotiate, look for some balance. And there were certain rules, not that I approve this, 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 kind, of, this kind of rule, but, but there were uh, rules of succession and uh, they could conspire against each other, but they, they had an interest of preserving the system. Now, one-man dictatorship is the most unstable and dangerous form of government. It's all about one man. Everything depends on his image, his strengths. The entire system of checks and balances built around him. It's far more dangerous and unstable than uh, any other form of dictatorship where you have some groups, like even even the most egregious groups, uh, mafia groups, negotiating with each other. It's about one man, and we know from history that when everything was concentrated just around one man. So we ended up with with the greatest disasters.
0: So there are various strategies of dealing with dictatorships, and America has, obviously, national interests. And over time, America has dealt with Russia and the the previous Soviet Union in different ways. And you've been critical, not just of Donald Trump, but also the way that the Obama administration dealt with Putin and Russia. Let me quote something to you. You said, I think speaking about the reset that the Obama administration advocated with respect to Russia... You said, what Obama did out of naivete and misguided ideology, Trump may do seeking profit. But both Obama and Trump enjoy announcing big deals and prioritize the illusion of success over the real thing. Why did you say that?
1: In in fact, in my book, Winter is Coming, I uh, looked at the earlier presidents. So I talked about Bill Clinton and Bush 43. Um, And my argument was that since the end of the Cold War, America had no strategy, long-term strategy, to make the difference to change the world. Since World War II, from Truman's administration to Ronald Reagan's administration, there was a certain consistency. There was a policy. Yeah, there were there were changes, but within within the range. You had Democrats and Republicans recognizing there was an existential enemy, and it's probably it's uh, quite symbolic that the institutions built by Harry Truman by a Democrat, like CIA, NATO, National Security Council, and many others, they led to the victory in the Cold War and the Republican president. Since 1991, it was more like a pendulum. There was no strategy. So that's why Bill Clinton did little. George W. did too much. Obama did almost nothing. But is there, now no, strategy,
0: Trump. But is there no strategy because all of a sudden the Iron Curtain fell? But that's, and they didn't know what the strategy it, it, should be? Absolutely, what should it be?
1: let's let's first discuss it because uh, we all made mistakes, and I, I I can confess that in 1992, I was I was also reading the end of history of, of Francis Fukuyama with just you know was great joy because we all expected that that's that was the end of history. Uh, let's celebrate, let's just look in the future with great expectations. but history is not linear, it goes in cycles. It rhymes. And it, yes. And also the evil doesn't die. It could be buried for a while and the rubbles of Berlin Wall. But the moment we lose our vigilance, it can sprout out. Going back to nineteen ninety one-92, we now have to recognize that when one chapter of history is, is closed, so we have to think about new plan. And uh, United States was and still is the leader of the free world, the most powerful country in the world. And it has to come up with an idea what is next, because if you don't offer that, vacuum doesn't stay for too long. Then vacuum is being filled, and you have Putin's Iranian mullahs, North Korean regime, China. You have all sorts of thugs and terrorists and, and dictators that will benefit from America's absence. Because America's absence in the world arena means that someone else will start coming up with an agenda, but this is not a long-term agenda. This is an agenda that is counterproductive for the few, for our future, future of humanity, because it's all based on immediate benefits for these players. And these benefits are just, you know, um, they're not strategic and uh, they're achieved at the great expense of people in these countries, but even for us here.
0: So you've established and argued pretty persuasively... That there hasn't been a, a good strategy for dealing with there
1: was no strategy period no strategy Russia. period, it's no not strategy a period. Good. okay it's
0: so the absence of a strategy yeah. so let's uh, let's suppose you're secretary of state actually let's not suppose that secretary of state apparently doesn't have any power and authority anymore let's uh, let's suppose you're the president of the United States
1: I, I was not born here so but I, nor
0: nor was I nor was I um, you are charged with figuring out what the strategy should be with Russia going forward given the history. And I know we can't solve this on a podcast, but what's your best sense of how we should deal with Russia?
1: I hear it all the time that, okay, what's now? What's now? We made mistakes. What's now? As a professional just It's not play, a bad question. No, no, no. <laughs> no, absolutely. But uh, as a professional player, and see that we just, before we make new moves, we have to just recognize mistakes we made. So it's very important. You analyze the games, you recognize what went wrong, so how can you improve it? And then you come up with, with a plan. The very important part of any plan is just to recognize that the results cannot be achieved while myself, you, whoever, is in the office. This is a big mistake because when you look at the politicians, whether in this country or across the Atlantic, they all look for immediate benefits. So how can I get something out of this plan? Now, going back to the end of the, uh, World War II, so you have to come up with a plan that may work in 10 years. It's very important that we will we'll get consensus that certain plans will not work instantly. And most likely the benefits can be arrived uh, by people that will follow you, even if you don't like them, because elections could bring other people in the office. If we have to deal with, I would say, existential threat, it's not the same as the Soviet Union, but it's still existential because it's even more dangerous to the very foundation of democracy. Because Putin and other thugs and terrorists, they know that they can survive only if they, if they can erode the base of the free world. So that's why we recognize that, whether we like it or not, in the globalized economy, we are empowering our enemies with technology invented here in the free world that they use very skillfully to undermine the very foundation of the free world. So it's a long story, but we have to recognize that we are at war. We don't like it but we are at war because the only way for these guys to survive is to be in the confrontation with us. They cannot compete with us uh, in productivity, in innovations, in social services, but they have one strategic advantage over us. They don't care about human lives. So for us, a loss of one life is, is tragic. For them, killing a million it's a demonstration of their strengths. So we just have to recognize that it's time to utilize our resources because, unlike in, in the 40s or even earlier, we now, for the free world, have the overwhelming military, economic, and even cultural and social advantage. How we use it, how we invest uh, our capital in the future. And I think it's very important that it starts here in the United States because. America should come up with a bright vision of the future. We just have to excite people about this this vision. If you don't excite young people with some kind of projects, ideas, then you have Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and and other groups. Status quo always loses to dynamic ideology, even if this ideology is very unhuman and
0: heinous. I want to talk about two entanglements with respect to Trump and Putin, potentially. One is, at the end of... 2016, when Obama was still president, but Trump had been elected, the Obama administration decided to engage in some sanction of Russia because of interference with the election. And they took some actions against Russian diplomats. And am I right that your expectation was, and most experts' expectations were, that in retaliation for what Obama did, Putin would then retaliate in return?
1: Um, That was a normal practice of the Cold War. And uh, uh, that would be normal.
0: But that didn't happen. Exactly.
1: And, that, and that's why not Why do normal. you think? Why do you think? That's not normal. That's yeah. this is, people should realize that for Putin to stop Lavrov, Russian foreign minister, of doing it after it was announced, by the way, Russian foreign minister already announced that they would mirror American actions. And do what? Well, just expel the same number of diplomats. So it's, just, it's something accepted throughout the Cold War. And for Putin today, not to do the same, so just to, uh, to not to respond to American hostility uh, by not expelling uh, American diplomats, uh, instead of inviting kids of these diplomats to a Christmas tree celebration in Kremlin, that was a show of weakness, Does, right? So that, Does to make
0: him? It, that is unless, a, the exact opposite unless, of all these unless, things we've been discussing.
1: Unless he had something much bigger in mind. So for Putin to look weak uh, means, just for me, it's this that he had something else. He, had, he, had, he, he calculated that he could uh, be compensated with a much bigger uh, victory. And the only explanation is that he expected Trump to rewind this order. And the reason he believed it was the uh, Michael Flynn called Russian ambassador when I think he reassured Russian ambassador that uh, Trump administration would... Uh, would um, not honor Obama's actions.
0: You don't think it was a promise of a weekend at Mar-a-Lago?
1: It was something much bigger. What is important is that Vladimir Putin believed Michael Flynn. So to but, me, I'm sure.
0: But when you say we don't have any evidence, but he called that Michael Flynn said that thing. No, no,
1: it's the look. I agree. Okay, so we are just you know if if we follow we're allowed to the, speculate the, on the podcast. Is, no, that's no, okay. okay. We can we but speculating is. What we know, that is Vladimir Putin stopped Russian foreign minister of doing what everybody expected him to do, to expel the equal number of American diplomats. Even what in, America
0: in, expected him in, to
1: do. Everybody expected. So uh, that's already, that's that's not just showing weakness, but also undermining one of his uh, most trustful cronies, who just followed the, the, the protocol. Now, we also know that Michael Flynn spoke to Russian ambassador. We don't know what he said, but he, he spoke to Russian ambassador. So I'm trying to connect these dots you may call a speculation. So what I believe happened is Michael Flynn asked Russian ambassador to pass the message to Kremlin that the new administration would go back to normal. And I think he begged him not to retaliate because that would give Trump sort of a better opportunity to show his, his friendship. I see no other explanation why on earth Vladimir Putin uh, made this decision and extended this uh, the olive branch to to America by inviting American kids to uh, Christmas tree in in, in Kremlin.
0: Right. Do you think Vladimir Putin regrets his decision to stay the hand of Lavrov, in retaliating?
1: No. Uh, again, Putin played this game. Uh, I think uh, this story proves to me, so it's you, you may call it speculation, uh, that uh, they had already many contacts with Michael Flynn and they trusted his authority to convince Trump to reverse the order. Whether Flynn acted under Trump's instructions or not, it doesn't matter. I think what is important is, as long as I understand Putin's psychology, he believed that Michael Flynn had acted on behalf of Trump. And Putin expected, as by the way, Russian propaganda machine, expected Trump to perform and to rebuild relations with Russia.
0: This may be an unfair question. And I know we're speculating, about what happened in that conversation with Michael Flynn and the staying of the hand on retaliation, but on a scale of one to ten, how confident are you in your theory? Ten. 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 Well, that's certainty. No, it's certainty because <laughs> that's no uh, longer yeah, speculation. Look,
1: in your part. Yeah, it's yeah. I'm I'm here, just you know, I can I can afford to speculate. But Putin is rational man, so this is when you look at what he does. In this case, it's there's no other explanation that Putin believed that he had to show this mercy and being gracious. Because something big was coming. And if you go back and just you look at what Russian propaganda said about Trump, and by the way, what they're still saying about Trump, even despite the fact that America is arch enemy, it's 24-7, America's bashing propaganda all over the place, they always separate Donald Trump and the deep state. Right. So the, the only criticism of Trump you can hear on Russian television is that that his weak and he cannot tame this deep state that is preventing a good guy to Donald Trump to improve relations with Russia. And I think that Putin had a dream that maybe they could bring Trump to Crimea and just to have another, maybe not big three, but big two now, scene of 1945 Yalta dividing the world. So I think that was, that was Putin's master plan. He expected that with Michael Flynn as national security advisor, that they could, they could succeed.
0: I mentioned that there were two entanglements between Trump and Russia that I wanted to talk about. The second one, this other entanglement, has to do with Trump's tax returns. And there's been a lot of talk during the course of the campaign and since uh, of people being upset that Donald Trump broke with tradition and norms of campaigning and didn't release his tax returns. Here's what you said about that. You said, quote, I'm troubled by Trump's refusal to share his tax returns in 2008." He was saved from bankruptcy by an influx of foreign money. And we have good reason to suggest that the money, most of this money, came from Russia and Russian oligarchs, close quote. And you think the tax returns might show that. Explain your belief there.
1: Naturally, Trump had relations with um, foreign money. According to his own son, a lot of this money came from Russia during this crisis, 2008-2009. We know that Russian oligarchs, as oligarchs from other places, uh, they were always looking for uh, sort of the best schemes to launder money. And real estate was the most uh, trusted algorithm of uh, siphoning money from one country to another. Obviously, a lot of money could change hands, but with real estate, you can put any price tag. And then it's it's very hard to prove uh, any wrongdoings. It seems to me that uh, Trump empire, was an ideal target for Russian oligarchs or ideal partner for Russian oligarchs to channel money to the United States. And since Trump's own son bragged about it, so I I believe that uh, it did take place, these transactions, these multi-million dollar transactions took place. Unless we see his tax returns, it will be very hard to prove the scope of the operation. For me, the problem is it's how much. It's not whether it took place.
0: right. Do you think that the reason Donald Trump has refused to, re- to release his tax returns is this?
1: I mean, probably the other things as well, but I'm sure uh, there were many operations that could uh, show that uh, he was not uh, very scrupulous with tax regulations. Here is pure speculation. I've, I, I don't On a scale of one to saying. 10, this is a lower number. It's much lower number. Okay. But if he was as rich as he claimed he was, and he is. And his, all, all these operations, these, the, uh, the money transfers, the real estate uh, deals, they were as clean as he claims they were. So why not? So if he was so adamant of doing something which could hurt his image, because he's very, uh, he's very protective of the image, and I think he knew, he knows that uh, his refusal to release taxes was hurting him. So that means that he had very serious reasons.
0: Yeah, some greater interest. Exactly. So, given my prior job, I looked at your arrest record, and you were, in fact, arrested, (laughs) am I correct? Yes. In 2012?
1: Uh, Yeah, also, yeah, a few times. Well, let's talk about the
0: 2000, you know, it's a long rap sheet, I know. Let's talk about the 2012 arrest. You were arrested at a protest? Yes. Tell us what happened.
1: Actually, it was not a protest, you know, it's the... (laughs) I was arrested several times at protest uh, actions, but in 2012, I was on my way to the courtroom, where they had to uh, read the verdict for Pussy Riot.
0: Pussy Riot, yes. who right. So
1: I was just it was the same it was as the same courtroom where they had a verdict for Khodorkovsky. So that's why I knew where it was. So I just arrived from my summer vacations and I was just walking there. There was no protest. All I wanted is just to get into the room just to, to sit there and just to it's a kind of moral. So what law did you break what law did you break? No I, I no no law. I mean it's just I had so many journalists just you know, surrounding me. The moment I was just taken away uh, and dragged by six of the riot police officers into the car. I was talking to Radio Liberty correspondent. It's just thanks God, you know, there were so many videos that showed that I broke no laws, and it was just you know, attacked all of a sudden by the riot police because they got an instruction. So, oh, it's just take this guy away.
0: Um, Do you think there was instruction directly relating uh, to you? Get get. No, just, that's,
1: that's what always ha- happened in Russia and still happens. So, this you had. Typically, you have the KGB guys, so the, the secret police guys in the crowd. They give instructions who to be arrested. I don't know why they wanted this conflict. Just no idea. So, but they just, just took me away. Uh, and then I tried to run away. And then just I was beaten. And then they tried to charge me for attacking an officer, biting his. So the good news. Did thing is, you bite? Did you bite but, an officer, sir? No, I didn't. I was, you know, for 20 seconds, uh, that I was, you know, I was lying on the floor, so I didn't even have time to, to open my mouth for any actions. Now, the good thing is that because there were so many cameras, they actually, you know, some journalists actually found, you know, just this in his picture, in the pictures he made, so that the, this officer that allegedly was, was beaten, he actually had this, uh, this cut on his finger 10 minutes before. So
0: that's just... So good for instant replay. It no, very it's very
1: Yeah, it's good for... It. And also, each of these 20 to 21 or 22 seconds of me just, you know, just being dragged by police and beaten, so they were recorded from different angles. But it was 2012. In, if, if the same happened today... Nobody who cares so' this i would be I would end up in jail for five because years for attacking police officer uh, who was in uniform and uh in active duty
0: so you think that the justice system, such as it is in Russia. Has deteriorated that much from two thousand twelve to two thousand seventeen.
1: It's all about justice system because it was already ruined. It's about the instructions from the government because the the end of the justice system actually you know could could be demonstrated. By my first arrest in two thousand seven, where they they arrested me uh, again just did nothing illegal. And then they had a police officer testifying who didn't see me at all, who was actually, who couldn't even mention the place and the time of my arrest. And then the judge who was, uh, was hearing the case, she said, look, I trust police officer, not videos, not audios, not uh, witnesses. Trust him because he's wearing the uniform. So since 2007 in Putin's Russia, no matter how much evidence you can bring, you know, with videos, with other witnesses, it's all about police officer who has the final word. Do you miss Russia? Look, I, uh, I would like to come back just to visit my mother, uh, so just a few friends. I don't think I will go back to leave there because I have my home here, I have my kids here in New York, but I think it's important for me just to, to feel free to come back and to help my country, just to go back to normal because I believe that the future of Russia could have vital importance for the future of humanity, because if Russia keeps deteriorating and creating more problems, the price we all pay could be too high. So I hope, I dream that there will be one day when Russia, instead of being the permanent source of the problem, would become the uh, rational solution for our problems.
0: Gary Kasparov, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time here. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Gary Kasparov. Just FYI, we're off next week. Enjoy the 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. God bless America. We'll be back with a new show on July 12th. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet or give me a call at 669 247 Seven three three eight. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send me an email to tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Jake McAbee, and Vinay Basti. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping, and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets.